What great worship, right? Even when we're a smaller group and more of a, what do they call it, unplugged, still really good. So let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we do need you. I'd ask that you'd quiet our hearts, prepare our minds. Lord, I do pray that you would open up the eyes of our heart. Give us insight today. Help us to love you better and to obey you better. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so if you've been with us for, I guess it would be four weeks now, we've been in a short uh, series on the book of Ephesians. And we've been encouraging everybody to read alongside. And hopefully, if you're reading through the book once a week, you're starting to see just how valuable that is for gaining insight into the scriptures and getting that in your mind. And the Lord can use that as he brings it up during the week in your minds. So we'd encourage you to continue to do that. Remember, there's six chapters. So if you read one chapter a day, you get one day off and you can still finish the book. So, so last week, we were in the Paul's first prayer in the book of Ephesians. It's Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. And we were able to get through two of the three points of insight that he prays for. So what Paul does in that first prayer is he prays that God would open up the eyes of our hearts and give us insight into three important things. So last week, before we even talked about those three things, we talked first about what spiritual insight is. And just to give you a quick review before we move on, we talked about the fact that spiritual insight is that's what God gives us, the ability to both accept and understand the scriptures. For example, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says this, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Later on in chapter 2, verse 14 in 1 Corinthians, he says this, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. We talked about that word appraised. To appraise something is to attach a value to it. So if something is spiritually appraised, you attach what you think the level of value that is based on where you are spiritually. And so the reason why that we say stuff sometimes as Christians and people around us kind of scratch their head and go, that doesn't sound very smart to us, is because they don't have the spiritual insight given to them by God. And so what Paul does is pray that we would have that spiritual insight. And we have that spiritual insight precisely because God's given us his spirit and changed our hearts towards the truth. And that gives us the spiritual insight. Now, what that doesn't do, however, is make understanding hard biblical concepts automatic for us. For example, at the end of 2 Peter, very, very, towards the very, very end of the book, Peter actually says, you know, Paul, he says some really hard things. They're hard to understand sometimes. So spiritual insight given by the Spirit does not guarantee that we're not going to have to put our thinking caps on. Today, we're going to have to put our thinking caps on a little bit. Fair warning. But we're going to pray for that spiritual insight so that we can understand these three things that Paul prays for us. 
So the first thing we talked about last week was the fact that we would have confidence, that we would have the confidence in God's future for us. Look in verse 18 of Ephesians chapter 1. The eyes of your heart having been enlightened so that you might know what is the hope of his calling. Now we talked about the fact that that word hope is not a kind of wishful thinking kind of hope. Biblical hope is actually probably better translated something like confident expectation. Because it's not that I'm hoping for something that hasn't been promised. It's actually using... Uh, looking at something that's coming down the pike because God promised it to us and looking forward to that with confidence. And so Paul says, I want you to receive this spiritual insight so that you can have this confident expectation as you walk through life. And we talked about that in pretty good detail last week. The second thing that we talked about last week was we were to understand Jesus's joy in us. We talked about this phrase in verse 18, where he says that we might know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So we talked about the fact that, and I spent a lot of people do this, I spent a lot of years reading this wrong, but we tend to think that's our inheritance that, we, that he's talking about there. Rather, what Paul's talking about is the fact that Jesus looks forward to us being his inheritance. So we are the saints, we are his inheritance. And he calls that glorious. And we talked about the implications of that for our life. So then today we want to move forward and we want to finish this prayer. And it's actually kind of appropriate, I think, that we spend basically one message on verses 19 through 23. Because notice he prays for three things. But two of the three things that he prays for he mentions in verse 18. And then he takes 19 to 23 to talk about this third point that he wants us to gain spiritual insight about. So that's what we want to do today. And just to quickly cover the kind of the main heading for it, look in verse 19. It says, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? So what we want to do is we want to understand, we want to gain spiritual insight into the fact that God is using great power on our behalf. So that's going to be the main topic of our message today. Now, I want to do three things then with the rest of our time. First thing I want to do is I kind of wanted to describe the dilemma of preaching these verses. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean in a moment with that. Then I want to investigate the background to these verses. And then I want to actually talk about the meaning of these verses and then the application. So you can tell two of the three things are kind of preparatory for us. So the reason I say that is the passage that we're looking at, 19 through 23, is one of the most um, background-ridden texts in the New Testament. What I'm saying by that is this. One of the dilemmas of this passage is it's so, there's so much Old Testament background assumed that if we don't have some of that background in the forefront of our brains, we're not going to pick up really what Paul wants us to get. So one of the dilemmas is that we're going to basically want to make sure we make some of these Old Testament connections. 
And we'll talk more about it in a second. Another dilemma is, is this. How much time do I spend on the third one versus the first two? Well, uh, so I've got a really good friend who's a pastor down in Mason, and we spend a lot of time talking. And we were talking about this text in particular, and I was talking about my dilemma because last week I was going to try to preach this all three points in one sermon, and it didn't work. And, and so we were talking about that, and he goes, well, you could have just kind of covered it in survey and not really mentioned everything in there. And, and I, I, I thought, yeah, that's true. But then we were talking some more, and as, as we were coming and talking our way through it, we both came to the conclusion, how could I take this really complex passage that's in a passage where Paul says, I'm praying that you'll gain spiritual insight into this and not deal with it and try to gain the spiritual insight? Do you see? So here we are. Let's do this. All right, let's, let's dig in. So I do have a chart here I want you to see. Um, this chart that we're going to pull up on the board here, um, it's pretty. Um, has anybody seen this before? This is an awesome chart. Some of you saw it. I know you saw it because I showed it to you. No, that's great. So this is actually a representation of the whole Bible. Okay? So if you look at the bottom part where you have those, what look like a graph of lines that are longer and shorter. Every one of those change in colors is a book of the Bible. Okay, And every one of those lines going down represents one chapter. And every one of those arcs represents one passage in the Bible referring to another passage in the Bible. Do you see? So do you see how many arcs there are? That is 63,000 plus interconnections in the Bible. That's how interconnected the Bible is. There's at least, and can you imagine being the guy who did the counting? One connection, two connections, three. So this is a pretty cool chart. By the way, Joanna, this is for sale, so I would love it for November 23rd for my birthday. I want a poster of that thing. But what's really cool is you see those arcs, and you see how much of the Old Testament gets referred to the new, and even the Old Testament referring to each other, right? But the, the length of those lines is how many times that chapter is referred to in, the, in, in another place in the Bible. Look at that really long line. Can you tell there's really one chapter that's referred to most by a long shot in the rest of the, the Bible? That's Psalm 110. That's Psalm 110. We will end up looking at that today because that's going to come into play as we move along here. But I wanted to show that because the, the, if you're reading some commentaries, maybe preparing to do a Bible study, if you see the term intertextuality, that's, this is kind of displaying intertextuality. Now imagine if we could have a hyperlinked Bible, right? We have reference Bibles that cross references. What if we could have a hyperlinked Bible that would cross reference all that stuff for us? Anybody really good with computers? Go for it. We, that would be a great service to the church, wouldn't it? So anyway, so we're, we're going to actually look at this. But this is one of those passages, Ephesians 1, 19 through 23, is super interconnected. And I'm only going to be able to hit three of those connections today because I actually want to, to finish you on time. But that's what we're going to do. We're going to be able to hit some of these interconnections. So what we want to do now is talk about the fact and some of the backgrounds, excuse me, to this passage before we dig in. So I probably could have picked about seven different things that I, I talked about, 
but we would be here through lunch. So I'm going to stick with three today, and let's talk about those three things. The first thing that we want to talk about by way of Old Testament background is what we will call the two-age view of reality. So during the New Testament time, they, the people of the day in Israel thought of history containing basically two different eras. Okay? The first era would be the present evil age. The present evil age. And the second era would be the age to come. The age to come. And that middle part, the pivot point between the present evil age and the age to come is the end of the age. So if you were Jewish and you were a good second temple Jew, you would basically think about the fact that you were living in this present evil age. Think about it. Rome's in charge. Is Rome godly or are they pagan? Very ungodly, very pagan, very anti-God, very anti-Israel. And they're living in this present evil age. And this age is dominated by evil spirits. Okay, Now as Christians, as modern American Christians, we tend not to think about the fact that there's a whole spiritual world out there. Because we generally don't see it. Because I think Satan's smart. Satan's extremely smart. And he knows that Western civilization doesn't need to see those things. Because that's just going to remind them that the spirituality is a real thing. But if you go to third world countries, if you know any missionaries that deal in third world countries, they understand the spirit world and how dangerous and how evil it is. And in that chart, if you don't mind bringing that back up for me, in the present evil age, the, the, the world was dominated by those evil spirits. And we're going to even see those referred to in our passage today. So you have this present evil age. And then if you're, if you're Jewish, you believe in a coming Messiah. When the Messiah would show up, that constituted the end of the age. And then you would enter into this kingdom period where, where God is going to establish his Messiah. He's going to put him on the throne in Jerusalem. And he's going to reign forever and ever. And he's going to put the worlds to right. And that's the kind of world, the background. So let's, let's hit some passages that demonstrate this. Because this is basically the worldview of the early Christian church. Um, one passage, Daniel 12, 11 through 13, kind of forms the beginning of this. And he says this in verse 13. But go your way till the end. This is a prophetic section in Daniel. And you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. And so Daniel looks forward to this end of days coming and moving into this age to come. And in the New Testament, we're going to actually see those two phrases. Look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 32. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Either in this age or in the age to come. You see, we have those two basic ages split down the middle at the end of the age. Again, in Matthew 24, verse 3, he sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately and said, tell us what will be these things and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. So they, by this point, they believe that Jesus is the Messiah and they're basically saying, when are you going to arrive, announce yourself as the Messiah and put yourself on the throne? That is, when will the end of the age be? Now, Jesus comes. 
breaks their expectation and doesn't seem to be offering a physical kingdom, although he is, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. But look what he says at the end. This is after his resurrection. This is the giving of the great commission. He says this in verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus says, I came, I died, and we're still waiting for that end of the age to come, even though they were anticipating it in Jesus' first coming. One last passage on this topic. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, 11. So at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he says the end of the age is coming down the road. And yet Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 11. He says this, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, that is for Christians, on whom the end of the age has come. This is a weird, seemingly contradictory passage because Jesus said the end of the age is coming. Paul said, if you're a believer, the end of the age has come upon you. Keep that in the back of your minds. We'll refer to that a little bit later. So we have this two-age structure. The end of the age being the pivot point between this present evil age and the age to come. Now, from our perspective, we still live in that present evil age awaiting for Jesus to return. Or do we? We'll, we'll talk more about that as well. The second passage I want to talk to you about is Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. Psalm 110, if you remember that chart, that was the one that was so long, it just outpaced everything else. It is the single most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. So if it's the single most quoted passage in the New Testament, how important do you think it is? Higher, higher, more important, more important. Yes, extremely important. So I'm going to have to, I'm really going to ask you to put your thinking caps on because this is a prophetic passage and it's confusing if we don't think through it and take our time. So I'm only going to talk about one verse because there's two really important verses in here that we could talk about, but I'm only going to hit the one today. So Psalm 110.1 says this, a Psalm of David. So who's speaking? David. And he says this, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So David is talking. So I'm going to play the part of David since that's my name. I was named after him. So I'll be David. I don't want you to imagine God. So I'm going to, I want you to imagine a big Shekinah glory up here. God has veiled himself partially just enough so that we can see the glory over there. And so David is speaking and he says Yahweh Jehovah says to my Lord now everybody in the New Testament period knew that this psalm was talking about the Messiah what's odd about that is David says Jehovah is talking to the Messiah saying sit in my right hand but David calls the Messiah his Lord how many how many dads you know call their son Lord? You get what I'm saying? My point here is this. There's something special about the Messiah that makes him greater than David. So Jehovah is in the heavenlies and he says to Messiah, 
sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. If you were living in the, in the Mediterranean world, if you're living in the New Testament time, you would understand that as a reference to God saying, Messiah, sit at my right hand and I'm making you king. I'm making you king. But there's something kind of unique about this Messiah because David, who is the father of the Messiah, right, calls his son, down the Rhine, he calls him my Lord. So there's something special about the Messiah that makes him better than David. Now later we learn that that's because he's God and that Jesus is God. But the point here is this. So we need to try to correlate this with our, with our chart. So we have the chart that says that there's the end of the age, or the end of the age, there's the present evil age and the age to come. If you were living in the New Testament time period, Jews of the day would have put Psalm 110 happening at the end of the age. So in your mind, Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father and beginning his kingdom would have happened in the present, at the end of the present evil age, at the end of the ages, and then they would have moved into the kingdom. Now, but notice what it says in verse 2 of Psalm 110. Psalm 110, 2 says this, Sit at my right hand, and I will make the nations a footstool for you. That's not what it says, does it? What does it say? Until... What most people in Jesus' day didn't realize that there was going to be a gap between Jesus being seated at the Father's right hand and the coming of his kingdom. Because they misread the until. Now, there were some, granted, there were some Jewish scholars who said there's something weird going on about this. Because one, in the Old Testament, the Messiah, there's two different Messiahs, it seemed like. There's the suffering Messiah and there's this glorified Messiah. Which is it? Some commentators were so convinced that they were so different that they thought there was two different messiahs. And then some of those same scholars thought, oh, that's interesting. There seems to be this potential for a gap between the seating at the right hand and the establishing of the kingdom on the earth. And what we're going to find is that's exactly what happened. There's this gap. Jesus ascends to the Father after his death, is seated at the right hand, and he currently waits until the nations are made his footstool mostly. We'll talk about the mostly in a moment. A third background piece. A third background piece. There is a pattern in the Old Testament that gets continued in the New Testament where first Jesus suffers... And then he enters into glory. And this is the part that most of the people in Jesus' day didn't understand. They thought Messiah was going to come. He was going to come in glory. He was going to ride into Jerusalem. He was going to turn the world upside down. Put Jerusalem at the center of the universe. Sit on the throne and make everything right, right there. They were right about the facts that that's going to happen. But what they were wrong about was this time period of suffering that Jesus was going to experience and humans were going to experience. Let's look at what I mean here. So if we were to take our Bibles, and I'll fly through several of these. 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11 says this. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was 
to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of the Christ and the subsequent glories. So in the Old Testament, if you read through your Old Testament prophetic sections, you have these, this suffering servant, you have the suffering Messiah, and then you have this glorious Messiah. And the, what Peter is saying is the prophets who even wrote this, they understood that this Messiah was going to suffer, they understood that the Messiah was going to be glorious, but they sat there and they searched and they inquired and they tried to figure out how the details work together. They didn't get to see it because they didn't get to live until the time of Jesus where it was fulfilled. But that, what that does is it breaks our time period into these two different time periods. There's a time period of Jesus suffering and there's a time period for Jesus' glory. We see this again in Luke chapter 17 verses 22 through 25. I'll give you some context here just the the first three verses are talking about the, the people are asking how the kingdom is going to come. And in verse 24, this is what Jesus says. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So Jesus tells the disciples ahead of time, you're expecting me to come in glory, but first, I have to suffer. So that I can enter into my glory. Romans 8, which we read earlier during worship. Romans 8.18 says this. For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy of compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. Or in verse 22 excuse me, in 23 and not only the creation excuse, 20, I'll read this whole thing here. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So we have this suffering before glory. One last verse, 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you might also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Do you see the suffering and glory? Suffering and glory. Now, if you're paying close attention, you'll have noticed a shift because what the New Testament writers do is they do a really good job of making Jesus' pattern our pattern. The same way that Jesus suffered, we're going to suffer. In the same way that we suffer before entering into glory, Jesus suffered and enters into glory. And he becomes our pattern. And as you read through the New Testament, see how many times you see this pattern spread throughout the whole New Testament. So we can glory in our suffering, Paul says, because we're fulfilling the pattern that Jesus did. In order to accomplish our redemption, Jesus suffered and then is going to enter into glory. We're going to suffer for a short time now before we enter into glory. So we have this pattern in the New Testament of glory and suffering. 
So if we look at the chart then of the end of the age, we have the two-age view of reality. The present evil age now becomes the age of suffering. Oop, not yet. The other one backwards a little bit more. It says suffering and glory. There we go. So this present evil age becomes this age of suffering. This present evil age becomes this age of suffering. And we look forward to the glories that we're going to experience. Now, that's the basic way of understanding it. But Jesus puts a little tweak, and Paul puts a little tweak to how we understand this pattern. Because from the perspective of the Jewish people, from our perspective most of the time, go ahead and leave that chart up there if you don't mind. Um, From the perspective of the people who were living at Jesus' time, this is the same chart that we would be looking at, that they would be looking at, and they would understand. But what Paul and Jesus say is there's a, there's a difference because of Jesus coming. Right? We have suffering and glory. Now let's go to back to the passage that I referred to in 1 Corinthians verses 10, chapter 10, verse 11. Because he says something really interesting here. He says this, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. So even though out of one side of his mouth, he says the end of the age is future, he says for believers, we have experienced the end of the age. How does that work? He basically says in the same way, the kingdom is both now, we've heard this before, right? The kingdom is both now and it's future. How does that work? It's because God has taken believers and placed them into the end of the age. And so now we have a a little chart that comes up here that shows that there's this kind of overlapping of the end of the age. So as believers, we have this already. We're living in this in-between time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Jesus. And in that in-between time, Paul says... The end of the age has come upon believers. See, when the Old Testament prophets talked about the end of the age, they talked about it as an age where the Spirit would be poured out upon his people and they would experience this kingdom living. What Paul says is, as believers who are not yet to the end of the age, God has placed on us the spirit, has given us the spirit, and in so doing has given us a bit of a foretaste of what life is going to be like at the end of the age. So the end of the age has come upon us. We talk about this being an already, not yet. And so if you're ever reading a commentary or listening to a sermon and someone talks about already, not yet, already, not yet, this is what they're talking about. As believers in Christ, we have been given the spirit and in so doing the end of the age has come upon us and we're experiencing in part the future that God holds for us yes Jesus wins but Jesus won as well because at the cross he says it's finished and Jesus wins and the end of the age comes upon us and we're given the spirit and then we experience the now and we experience the end of the age in the future even better Wow, thanks for being patient with me as I hit some of this background because it's, the, our text won't make much sense if we don't. So here's how it works then. 
to try to bring all of those backgrounds together with this overlapping of the end of the age. So if we look at the present evil age, it's an age of suffering. And in the overlapping, it's an age of both suffering and glory for believers. And in the Jesus' second coming, it's going to be full glory. By the way, if you understand that chart, go read 2 Corinthians 3 and let that blow your mind. Because he talks about both suffering and glorying in there in a really impactful way. Just a little bonus for your devotions on the side. So all of this is the background to what we're looking at. And you're going, what does this have anything to do with God's power towards us? That's a fair question because I was asking it myself this week. But look what he says in verse 19 of chapter 1 in Ephesians. We're back to Ephesians now. In Ephesians, I'll I'll read 18 for, for context. The eyes of your heart having been enlightened so that you might know what is the hope of his calling... What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of, the, of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of the might, the strength of his might. Okay, so Paul is kind of known as being bombastic. Not in a bad sense, but just stacking modifier on top of modifier on top of modifier. Just think of how many ways he said strong so far. Just look what he says, 19. What is the surpassing greatness? That sounds pretty strong. All right, what's the next phrase? The surpassing greatness of his power. Well, that's really, really strong. Okay, the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. According to the working, that's more power added. To the, according to the working of the power of his might. Now, me, I'm like, that's enough. I know God's powerful. Boom, we're good. But that's not what Paul does. Paul just keeps stacking it. Because he's going to keep going. He says this in verse 20. Who raised him... That is to say, he raised him, I'm sorry, I've got to get context here. Verse 19, what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his might, which he worked in the Messiah, raising him from the dead. So not only is he super powerful, I'm going to use all these words for strength, now I'm going to top on the fact that he's so powerful, he can raise Jesus from the dead. That's powerful. Enough for you? Not enough for Paul. Let's keep going. He says not only because he raised him from the dead, he's going to seat him at the right hand of the Father. He's going to seat him at his own right hand. Now that's not just, hey, have a seat. That's making him king of the universe. So not only is he strong enough to talk about how great and powerful he is, he can raise him from the dead, and he can install him as the king of the universe. Is that powerful enough? No, not for Paul. He wants us to know that he's even more powerful than that. So he says this, he seats him at the right hand. In verse 21, he says this, over every ruler and authority and power and lordship and over everything that is named. Is there anything in the universe that's not being covered here? Now, this is where I mentioned it's talking about the spirit world. This isn't just talking about kings and rulers. This is talking about the spirit world. Because remember, even though we live in this Western scientific world where we don't think There's much of a spiritual world out there. There's a whole spiritual world. If we could peel away the physical and see the spiritual realm, there's a lot of activity. How else can you take children in your culture and have parents lovingly thinking they're doing them a favor by taking them to strip shows? 
and drag queen shows. Tell me we don't have a satanic culture. And Paul says, God placed Jesus over all of those authorities. So we don't have to fear that world, even though we need to know it exists. To finish that verse, verse 21, he says, not only in this age, but in the age to come. You see? So God is so powerful, he can raise him from the dead, he can seat him at the right hand, he can have power over all of the spirit world, and that's still not quite enough for him. He still has to show just how powerful God is towards us. He says this in verse 22, and he placed all things under his feet. Wait, doesn't that sound like a contradiction? We just got done saying that Psalm 110 says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And we said that's going to happen at the end of the age, end of the age. But what does Paul say here? Paul says that he placed all things under Jesus' feet. Already? Not yet. Already? Not yet. But see where he's done it? He's done it here. In all things, excuse me, and all things he placed under his feet, and he gave him his head over all things. Where? In the church. Please never underestimate and never downplay the importance of the church in God's program. This is the current manifestation of God's kingdom where Jesus has been raised, seated at the right hand, made head of the church, and he's reigning over his church, all things in the church. We can't take the church lightly. Now, Let's be clear. We don't come to the church for salvation. We come to God for salvation who then places us in the church. We've got to get that order correctly. But the church is important. The church is extremely important. Look at what he says. The church which is his body, the fullness of the all who are filled by all things in all. And I'll be honest, I spent about two hours trying to figure out what that meant. And then I finally realized I was being silly. What's Paul doing there? He's trying to overwhelm you with just how full the church is. He's just trying to overwhelm you with a bunch of words about all. Do you think the church is everything? We talked earlier about how Ephesians 1 drops this little boulder at the top of a mountain on a snowbank and it starts to pick up momentum and teach more and more and more about his church. In chapter 1, earlier he started off with a pretty big statement about the church. It's the summing up of all things in the Messiah. Everything about human history comes to head in the church. It's moving from this and moving out from there. That's the focal point of history. Our church, God's church, is important. And now he says, 
It's the manifestation of God's kingdom on the earth whereby Jesus is reigning at the right hand of the Father over his church waiting for the day when he comes back and puts everything to right. One of my favorite things to do in the last three months since I've now become a grandfather is to babysit little Solomon. And one of the things that Solomon does, I feed him a bottle. And I think my favorite time is after he drinks his bottle, I call it milk drunk. You know, remember when little babies just kind of collapse on your shoulder asleep? It's really cute in three-month-olds. But brothers and sisters, it's not cute in adult humans. There's so many of us who treat the church as if it's just something I come to. And we come and we feed and we're like milk drunk little babies that don't do anything for Jesus. And I know that's harsh. And I know that's strong. But God calls us to live for him through our local church. You need us. We need you. This is a body that God designed so that we could represent God's kingdom on the earth to people around us so that as we grow as a church, as people in the church, we reach out to people and the church grows because we're reaching other people for the cause of Jesus Christ and for the kingdom. Like I said, I love it when milk drunk Solomon falls asleep on my shoulder. But God forbid that I be a milk drunk baby in his church. Say, well, what am I supposed to do? Come to the service. Get engaged. Get engaged. What do we mean by that? Find a small church. Find a life group. Find a way to serve. It's really easy to get wrapped up. I'm talking to a lot of people coming out of COVID. COVID has done more to drive people into this milk drunk state than probably other, any other time in recent history. And we need to come out of that stupor. And we need to serve in the church because God calls us to live for his kingdom. And the kingdom primarily in the, this time period is manifested in the church. Can we do that together? I want, you, I want you to pray. I want you to pray that God would find one way that you can engage if you've been disengaged from the church. Find one way that you would engage more with the church. Find one way that you can serve. Find one way that you can reach out. Just find one. Just start with one. But if you're that milk drunk baby, let's wake up from the stupor. Let's pray. Lord, your, your word is powerful. It's convicting. And I feel hypocritical even talking about it because I know times in my life where I've been that milk drunk baby. Lord, we want to serve you with our lives. We want to serve your kingdom. And we want to see you glorified in Midland, in Midland County, in Michigan, in the States, and in the rest of the world. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.